What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I am very happy to have Steve Kasareff with me today. He is a graphic designer, screenwriter, director, editor, producer, and author. The book he is here to talk about today is called Satin Pumps, The Moonlit Murder That Mesmerized the Nation. Great to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So you have a personal connection to this story, right? I do. I do. Um, uh, Dr. Bernard Finch was our family doctor. And not only that, he delivered me and the oldest of my three younger sisters. I was about uh, a month shy of my eighth birthday when Barbara Finch was murdered. And the one incident that I remember the most from is that shortly after it happened, uh, my mother was taking me to the medical clinic that he co-owned with his brother-in-law. Um, and I remember just before we walked in the door, she says, don't say anything about Dr. Finch. Don't mention his name. And I thought, well, that's kind of bizarre. And, you know, like an eight-year-old kid, uh, I don't remember if I did, but, you know, if I wanted to be bratty, I'm sure I would have said, where's Dr. Finch? <laughs> so these events take place in Southern California, 1959, the city of West Covina. What Was it a suburb at that time? It's a suburb of Los Angeles. It's about 20 miles east. And uh, it was a farming community initially. And then just after World War II, it was one of the growing suburban uh, settlements. And Dr. Finch at that point uh, sort of lucked out. The stars aligned for him because he ended up buying property along with his brother-in-law, uh, to build the medical clinic, which was right off of the uh, planned uh, number 10 freeway, the San Bernardino freeway, which is being built heading east from Los Angeles to San Bernardino. Was it an, an affluent city? Parts of it were. Uh, his family was pretty well known. He was kind of a golden boy. Uh, his uh, family was sort of the founding uh one of the founders of the city of Covina, which is where he actually grew up. His father was uh, an optometrist and he co-owned a famous jewelry store there with his uh, brother, Finch Jewelers. 
And uh, Bernie, as that he was called, was sort of the golden boy of the family. He was the oldest of three children. He had two younger sisters. And his parents doted on him. And it was pretty much determined early on that he was going to be a doctor. And so he followed that path. Well, what was Dr. Finch like? Uh, he was a, a ladies' man. He was very charming. Uh, he loved attention. He was very social. Uh, you know, obviously that got him to trouble down the line. And uh, he had uh, all the female employees at the West Covina Medical Clinic apparently under his spell. And uh, even though he was married, uh, they were lining up to have dates with him. What was his home life like? Uh, he, his first marriage produced, a, a, I think he had three children. And um, he, you know, he sort of had a, a wandering eye, uh, I think, always. And, you know, that was because of his golden boy status. Uh, he ended up having an affair with his uh, second wife before they were married. And she was a patient of his. She came to him initially when she was about to give birth. And then after birth, she ended up working as his medical secretary. And uh, somehow they managed to arrange living next door to each other. He ended up buying a house next door to her and her husband, living with his uh, first wife and his children. But he's living next door to, uh, to his, who would become later Barbara Finch. And they were having an affair, and eventually uh, he divorced his wife, and they ended up getting married. But there was some time involved over a court, you know, over a period where that happened. So tell us about Barbara and their relationship. Well, she had sort of a, a an interesting childhood. She, her initially. Her family had some money. Her father owned a custom shoe store in Beverly Hills, and they didn't live in, you know, have a really expensive home, but they had one in the flats, and they had hired help. They had a maid, and eventually when the Depression came, they ended up losing that, and she ended up moving into the high desert with her family, and she was not happy about that, and uh, she eventually married a man who ended up uh, owning an auto shop. And that just didn't sit well with her. She had the taste of luxury at one time, and she wanted that again. And I think she saw Bernard Finch as her ticket out of the situation that she was in with her husband. And uh, so she got involved with him. So how long are they married before things start to get rocky? Not a really long time, a few years, uh, because of his wondering eye. Uh, he ended up building a home for her uh, up on the hills in West Covina, a very elaborate home that uh, was on a couple lots, had a swimming pool. And uh, she loved being married to him because of the cachet that she got. She was very socially involved with the community. She actually was running his, uh, his business office and paying bills. And uh, she, you know, she loved doing that. 
And uh, he was a tennis pro. He taught her how to play tennis. She became pretty good. They were members of the Los Angeles Tennis Club, Athletic Club. And uh, so she, uh, they were friends. They, uh, she became friends with uh, movie stars like Vera Allen. And so they were socially engaged. How, how was he as, as a doctor? Was he a good doctor? You know, I, it wasn't until I started to do research for the book that I started to look in. And there were actually a number of uh, lawsuits against him personally and the medical clinic. I believe there were 11 of them. And now, you know, doctors have those. They're, they just sort of come with a territory. But there were actually some involved with children who, uh, in one case, the, the child actually died. I think, believe he did an aptomectomy and he didn't, uh, became infected and he didn't get to the hospital in time and the child died. And so uh, there were some lawsuits involved with him. And I start to think about what happened when I was growing up. And he told my parents that the uh, uh, breathing issues I was having as a very young child, that I should have a tonsillectomy, that it would, uh, you know, it would solve the problem. And so I was think about two years old when they gave me a tonsillectomy and it didn't solve the problem. And it seems that he was also known for performing operations that weren't needed. Uh, I'm wondering if the cesarean uh, section that my mother had to deliver me was necessary or he was just trying to look, you know, to cash in on it. But there seems to be some uh, evidence that, uh, that he was performing surgeries that were unnecessary. Oh goodness. Yeah. So there is definitely an ethics issue. <laughs> I, I think, you know, becoming a doctor, I think he was sort of steered in that direction. I'm not so sure that he really actually enjoyed it. I think what he enjoyed was the cachet and the social status that it gave him. And obviously it paid very well. Uh, they were, uh, he and uh, Dr. Gordon, who was his brother-in-law, were raking in the money from the medical clinic, and they actually ended up developing a hospital, which would be, eventually be built next door on the property. So how does he meet Carol Ann Trigoff? Well, it's, it's interesting. That story kind of parallels what happened to his, wife, his second wife, Barbara Finch. Uh, Carol, uh, was in, uh, an unhappy marriage. She was very young. She was married to a bodybuilder and culture model, and she really was not in love with him. And so she sort of had a wondering eye and she started, uh, she was attracted to older men and she also wanted a job. Uh, so she found a, uh, an ad somewhere that they were look that the West Covina medical clinic was looking for a receptionist. And uh, so she uh, applied, she got the job, and in a short period of time, she ended up moving up to being his medical secretary. And she knew that he was attracted to her, but she sort of, you know, played it cool and everything. So eventually they ended up having a lunch together. And from that point on, the relationship turned into something much more, uh, even though both of them were married at the time. And there was a famous incident that I recall in the book where they went to the Luau in Beverly Hills, which was a, a restaurant that Lana Turner's ex-husband, Stephen Crane, owned. And it was famous for, it had a tiki uh, you know, motif. 
It's famous for its South Seas drinks and everything. And uh, they, you know, they ended up getting sloshed on uh, the house drink there. And then they ended up driving up into the uh, Hollywood Hills to watch the view. And lo and behold, before you know it, it's in the early hours of the morning and she hasn't returned home and her husband's worried. And she rolls in to her home in La Plenty and her husband, you know, he's waited up all this time and he demands to know where she is. And she refuses to tell him. And he says, well, I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to call your employer. I'm going to call Dr. Finch and tell him you're not coming in in the morning. So <laughs> he did. And, you know, naively not knowing that's who she was with. And I can only imagine, which I do on the book, that after Dr. Finch hung up from that phone call, he or while he was on the phone call, he was probably trying to restrain his laughter, you know, at the you know stupidity of the guy. And, uh, and, and so, uh, that's sort of how that came about. Right. So at some point during the affair, the idea of divorce surfaces for, for Dr. Finch and Barbara, Who, whose idea is it to get a divorce? Well, they actually, Finch doesn't want a divorce because he knows if Barbara can prove adultery, which at the time there were no community property laws in, in California, that if she could prove that he was having an affair, she could theoretically end up with everything. And he was worth in what would be today's dollars, about $6 million with the medical clinic, uh, his home, his cars, and uh, various other properties. And so he did not want to lose that. He was very selfish and he controlled that too. Barbara really didn't know a whole lot about exactly what he owned or the value of it, even though she did his books at the, at the medical clinic, the billing anyways. So she did not want to give him a divorce. So now they were faced with, you know, they wanted to be together uh, and she did not want to give him a divorce. So that's when they started to talk about other alternatives. Now, uh, did she catch him cheating? She Was never really affair? walked in on, on him or anything. She at one point hired uh, an investigator and they ended up bugging uh, Finch and Carol had a couple places as love nest. He rented a couple of various apartments over a period of time where they would have their rendezvous. And Barbara actually had one bug. There were actually tape recordings made. So she knew what was going on. She never physically walked in on them, but she knew what was going on. And she knew his history of other women at the, uh, the medical clinic. But I think her status meant so much more to her. They, Barbara and both Barbara and Bernard, Bernie were, you know, money and status meant a lot to them. And unfortunately to both their detriments, it's, you know, what became their undoing. So she did know about it. Both, both women, Barbara and Carol, were uh, very beautiful. They were. Uh, and, uh, you know, later on, because of uh, Carol was very photogenic. And, you know, during the course of what ensued, the press could not get enough of her uh, photographers. She was like, uh, they treated her like a movie star. Was Finch just a, a serial cheater? I think it was just his nature. You know, uh, he had the way his parents raised him. Uh, he pretty much thought he could do anything he wanted and did. 
Uh, there were instances where he also had a drinking problem and there were instances where he would be drunk and he had this beautiful uh, Chrysler, 1957 Chrysler 300E convertible, a red car. The car could easily reach 120 miles an hour and he would get in that car and drive and, uh, you know, be speeding and the police would stop him. And once they saw, found out who it was, they pretty much just let him go with a warning, you know. And he often played his doctor card too, you know, he, all he had to do was show his stethoscope that he had, and maybe he could claim that he was on the way to, to uh, make a house call or something. Now, at this point in his career, right, he's had some troubles. His co-workers are a little wary of him, tired of his behavior, uh, tired of the trouble he's causing. Yeah. And I, don't know exactly what happened, but what I do know because it ha- because my family was involved is that my uh, third or second sister, the middle sister, was scheduled to be the first baby delivered at West Covina Hospital when it opened on uh, in October of 1958, and uh, she she was supposed to be delivered by Doctor Finch. And just about this time, though, somehow we ended up becoming patients of the other, his brother-in-law, Franklin Gordon, who was the other doctor who co-owned the hospital and medical clinic with him. And the only thing that I can think is that Finch's behavior got to such a point that to save face and not prevent any of the, you know, business issues that the board of West Covina Medical Clinic and Hospital, including Franklin Gordon, his brother-in-law, relieved Finch of a lot of his duties. And uh, I think they probably sent letters to all of Finch's patients and said that, you know, they made something up, that he's cutting back he, or retiring or something. They made some excuse for him, and they said that you will have to choose another doctor here at the medical clinic or go elsewhere. And I think that uh, my mother's no longer alive, so I was never able to ask her about that if she even remembered it. But I believe that they sent letters out to their patients, and that's how we ended up with Dr. Gordon as our, as our doctor. And this was about a year even before Finch killed Barbara. So this had been building, you know, quite a bit with his activities. Uh, you know, even with Carol, he was cheating on her at times. So he was a, a, you know, sort of a serial uh, philanderer. And, uh, but I think it ju- Dr. Gordon just couldn't uh, ignore it anymore. There was one instance where Jimmy Papa, who was Carol Tragoff's husband, decided to confront Finch at West Covina Medical Clinic. And he came in, and I'm sure that Finch steered him into probably a consultation room so everybody wouldn't be able to hear it. But I'm sure it was a pretty heated conversation, uh, and Jimmy Papa, re, uh, you know, uh, told about basically what was said, what he said in the trials, and uh, he threatened Finch, and Finch threatened him, and uh, and I'm sure it was pretty heated conversation. It was probably pretty loud, and I'm sure if the patients didn't hear it, the employees did. And this had to have been, if Dr. Gordon didn't hear it, this had to have been getting back to him. And so that's when the decision was made that they just couldn't put up with Finch's behavior anymore. 
and decided to, uh, uh, you know, they still own the hospital, but they, and the medical clinic, but they cut back his, uh, his, his seeing patients and responsibilities there. Interesting. So the two of them begin scheming about murdering Barbara, but they don't actually want to commit the murder themselves, right? Yeah. Initially, what their th- plan was is, and I have a feeling that he got this from uh, a film, a Robert Mitchum film. Uh, what they were going to do is Finch was going to drug his wife, place her in the his car, his prized car, and send it over an embankment next to his house. And uh, he would, you know, inject her. She would be dead, actually. And then, the car, you know, it would look like she had died from... She had been drunk and had just missed the, the garage and driven over the side of this embankment. That was his plan. And uh, in fact, uh, it, that plan actually came back towards the end when they failed to find somebody to uh, a hitman to do her in. And we will be right back after some brief messages. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we have returned. 
Yeah, that, that, that's what I wanted to ask you about the hitman. They, they wanted to hire someone else to kill. Yeah, him. they had, uh, about this time, uh, things were getting a little too hot for them as far as the, the fact that they were carrying on this affair and they were both working at the medical clinic. So their plan was for Carol to uh, leave her job there and uh and go to uh, las vegas she was afraid that she was going to be served as a co-respondent in, in a finch divorce if barbara actually divorced him so she hightailed it out to las vegas and she ended up working as a cocktail waitress at the sands hotel and as it looked like it was closer that she, barbara was actually going to file for divorce that's when the plan actually went into effect that they were going to find somebody to do it now that's where it gets interesting because neither of them had, were street smart and they weren't murderers per se. So Carol starts asking around. She's got a childhood friend who lives there and he knows somebody who knows somebody. And it turns out uh, that they find this guy named Jack. And Jack is not actually a murderer. He's more of a con man than anything. And he knows a good game that he can talk up with them to, to take him right to the edge. And, you know, they, Carol and then Finch buy into what he's saying. And there's a whole plan for him to come into Los Angeles and to do Barbara in on a particular weekend. She's, she's already moved out of the house because of the contention with Finch physically and verbally abusing her. So she's decided to take a weekend off and she stays with a, a friend of hers in Hollywood. And uh, the plan is for uh, Jack to go into hollywood and kill her and then put her body in the car trunk and and go from there and eventually what happens is jack claims he's done it when it's supposed to have happened and everything and for whatever reason finch decides to call his house and guess who answers the phone barbara so she's <laughs> very much alive so they've been conned and they go back to the well again and they buy Jack's story. And he says, Oh, he goes, well, I, I shot somebody. I, I put a body in the trunk. And at that point, Finch thinks that it's actually uh, Barbara's f friend that he killed. And uh, so he says, well, I'll, I'll go back. I'll take care of it. So they arrange for him to do that again. And uh, instead, he uh, he does come to Los Angeles, but he parties, and then he ends up going back to Las Vegas, getting his stuff, and leaving town. And they're pretty much holding the bag. They're out about half the money that they agreed upon to pay him, and now they're stuck. This guy's name was Jack Cody, right? Yes. And he had, uh, I believe he was from Minnesota, he had uh, a rap sheet. None of it included murder. It was more burglary and, and petty theft and that kind of thing. And But he thought he was quite a ladies' man, and he would prove to be an interesting character later on during the trials. Right. So that plan failed, and you've already talked about their own plan to kill her themselves uh, to make it look like an accident. So now they're going to do something similar to that. And they decide to Finch uh, flies to Las Vegas. He waits at uh, Carol's apartment that the, he rented for her. When she gets off of work, she picks him up 
And now they're going to make the five-hour drive from Las Vegas to West Covina. And they could have changed their minds, but they didn't. And so they arrive about 1130 uh, at the Finch home. And uh, Barbara's not there. The car is gone. She has a, a 59 Cadillac that uh, she drives, but she had switched cars. Finch actually took the Cadillac and she was driving his uh, 1957 Chrysler 300E. And so they decide to wait, lay in wait for her on the uh, lawn. Finally, she rolls in about, uh, they ended up waiting. She rolls in about, uh, I think they arrived there 11. She rolls in about 1130, pulls into the garage. And they had parked their Carol's car down the road and walked up the hill so that Barbara couldn't see it, wouldn't notice any automobile when she drove into their driveway. And so they come up behind her. And as she's starting to get out of her car, Finch pulls a gun out and hits her on the back of the head and sort of dazes her, knocks her down to the ground. And then there's a, a fight. Uh, a struggle that ensues and Finch got more than he bargained for because she put up a fight. She started screaming and the uh, au pair, a Swedish au pair who was taking care of the kids heard her scream and came running out of the house. And now Finch was having to deal with not only his wife, but the Swedish au pair and why Barbara was laying on the ground when the Swedish pair burst into the garage. He ended up, grabbing her and knocking her head into the uh, cement wall of the garage. And once he manages to wrangle the two women, he forces them into the car. And his plan then is to basically, now he's going to have to kill both of them, send them over the the side of the, the embankment. But Barbara bolts from the car. And as she's running down the driveway, the Swedish au pair runs back into the house to call the police and Finch gives chase after Barbara. She breaks a heel and she makes her way down the driveway and his parents, Finch's parents own the house on the other side of the driveway. Uh, and she's making a beeline for that. And as she's starting to run down the seven dirt steps into their lawn, he shoots her and uh, in the back and she stumbles, falls down the stairs, and then collapses on the lawn and dies. Now, during this time, Carol was behind him, but she hid, she claimed she hid in the bushes when uh, the Swedish au pair, uh, Marie, came into uh, the, the lawn, or into the garage. And uh, there's some contention that she... In fact, she claimed through the whole trials that she was actually uh, stayed in this Bougainvillea bush for hours while the police were investigating. But uh, it's interesting that that Finch's parents, his father, his mother was an invalid, but his father heard the, the gunshot and assumed that it was the backfiring of a car, so he never came out. And Barbara had gotten really close. She literally was a few yards from their front door. The house faced uh, the front of the house actually faced the back. uh, And was just a level below, uh, a slight level below Finch's driveway and home. 
is Carol actively involved in, in any of this at all? Uh, she had carried the, uh, the, what they, what the jury would later term the mur- murder kit, which contained, uh, you know, drugs and ropes and, uh, uh, vinyl gloves, uh, because they were intentionally going to drug her and then kill her. Uh, but that didn't happen. And because she never handled the gun, uh, that sort of ended up saving her life. But, uh, she, they did get her as an, as a, in conspiracy for, for the crime, even though she did not, wasn't personally responsible for Barbara's death. So after all of this happens, they, they know they need to get out of there fast, right? Yeah. What, what happens is that actually, though Carol claims that she had stayed in, you know, the time while the police came and investigated, she actually took off and made the trip back to her apartment. Uh, and I actually did some calculations and stuff. And uh, she could have easily done that, though she claims she stayed in the Bougainvillea bush for hours and the police never found her what finch does next is he ends up picking up the shell casings barbara's purse which the contents he had dumped in the uh garage when he was trying to look for her car keys to drive the car you know out and take barbara with the with him you know and send her over the side of the roof but uh marie ann stopped that from happening so he grabs the, the, the purse, the shell casings, and he starts running down the hill from his home into the South Hills Country Club, which still had some remaining orange groves, which they hadn't pulled out yet. And as he crosses from the orange groves, he's just kind of blindly running, not really thinking, and he comes upon this car sitting in a driveway. And a lot of people in the 1950s still left their car keys in the ignition. And uh, so he has an easy getaway car. He steals that car and he drives off. And the owner actually had uh, one of those uh, gas station-like belts that ran the hoses that ran across the driveway. So when somebody would drive in, they could hear, they would know that there was a car there for service. And so this guy had one of these in his driveway, which seemed pretty odd. And he thought it was just one of his kids returning home from a late night. So he never looked out to see that his car was missing at that point. So Finch drives and gets into La Puente area, which is another town on the other side of West Covina. And he ends up stealing a second car, ditches the first car, uh, literally blocking the home of a police officer who's leaving to go to work. Uh, who calls it in. So now the police are, you know, they're aware of his presence, but he makes one more stop. He goes back to, he goes to West Covina medical clinic and uh, nobody knows why he does that. But once he's driving out of the medical clinic is when he's spotted by a patrol car that's looking for him. And then they give chase and he ends up getting on the San Bernardino freeway headed towards downtown Los Angeles with about 20 police cars chasing him at this point. And somehow he manages to get off the freeway without them seeing him and turns back around, makes a U-turn, gets on the other side of the freeway and heads towards out of town, out of Los Angeles. In the meantime, the police think they've spotted his, the car that he's stolen and they end up 
driving this elderly woman off the freeway into the median strip, which is gravel at the time. And once they open the door, they realize it's not him, but her. So now he's, he's on his way out and he's headed towards Las Vegas for a rendezvous with Carol. So the police arrive to process the crime scene. Uh, what do they find? How does their investigation begin? Um, you know, they're, they're going through, uh, they didn't really do a major search uh, early on. And what's interesting is that when Finch's father, name, whose name was Raymond, got up that morning, he looked out and he saw all the police presence there. And, you know, he knew that Barbara and, and his son were fighting. So uh, it wasn't until he actually in the morning he walked and I don't know how he got through all the police strong, but nobody seemed to stop him. And he walked into the Finch's house, which was unlocked and started looking for things. And, uh, he knew where they kept the valuables. He ended up picking up the silver and Barbara's wedding rings. And, uh, then on the way out, he found the murder kit that Carol Tragoff had left behind when she hastily exited the scene, and uh, which Finch never retrieved because he hot-footed out of there too. So he found the murder kit and uh, Finch's alpine hat, which would play uh, a key piece of evidence in this uh, in the trials that ensued. And then later on, he ended up giving them to the police. And, you know, the police wouldn't admit it, but they were sort of uh, red-faced about being caught with their pants down when uh, when evidence was missing that they didn't catch. And they had cops going over the area uh, and didn't get, find this. And it wasn't that well hidden because of Raymond being able to find it. And... Uh, when they gave them the kit and they had the key, uh, they opened it there. And that's when they found the ropes and the various drugs and its syringes and stuff that Finch had planned on using on Barbara, but didn't. So how are our Finch and Carol caught? What's interesting is that there was a cop, that, a West Covina police officer who lived near her and her husband. And... Uh, they actually, the neighbors knew about Finch coming over there and so on. In fact, there is a, a son of one of the neighbors who lived there, and his family had a clear view of uh, Finch coming over to Carol's house when Jimmy Papa was out working. And so he had, uh, because he was a neighbor, because this cop was a neighbor of Carol's and Jimmy's, he knew that she had left. Jimmy, and that she was living uh, uh, in Las Vegas working as a cocktail waitress and uh, at the Sands. So he heard, you know, the report about Finch and so on, and he ended up, you know, obviously passing that information on to the department. And so, you know, once Finch was gone, they assumed that he would possibly meet up with Carol. So they ended up sending a couple officers, or actually it was a couple uh, Las Vegas sheriff's deputies that ended up going to Carol's apartment, and they found Finch sleeping in the bed and uh, rousted him up and uh, took him in for questioning then. 
And then later, while they were holding Finch, waiting for the West Covina police to come into town to pick him up, uh, they went to the Sands Hotel and uh, started talking to Carol. And uh, they took her back to her apartment. And they, you know, they talked to her somewhat there, but she came in willingly into the uh, station and uh, made a statement and stayed there uh, until uh, she was released. But the uh, West Covina uh, Police Department ended up coming and picking up Finch later that evening. So have the two of them uh, tried to match up their stories in anticipation of, of being interrogated? Well, initially Finch said he wasn't there. And then eventually the story changed. Um, uh, they ended up taking him. And then when Carol came back into town, she showed up at the Finch family home. And uh, by this time, Finch had legal counsel and uh, who was uh, Grant Cooper, who uh, became a famous, was a famous criminal defense attorney, handled Sirhan Sirhan later in the Robert Kennedy assassination. And uh, Grant Cooper walked the grounds with Finch and with the uh, police and the uh, deputy district attorney. And uh, they were hoping, you know, they couldn't find the gun that she was killed with. And Finch led them on kind of this wild goose chase and led the reporters. Uh, he loved to play the press. He led the reporters to believe that he was just about to find the where he threw the gun. And uh, the press got really excited. And then he'd say, oh, it's not here and must be further down. So then they keep traveling. And eventually, you know, this game became tiring and he gave that up. But they never did find the gun. And in fact, they never did find the gun. It hasn't been found to this day. Do you have a, a suspicion as to where the, the gun? I do. I think that trip that he made into West Covina Medical Clinic uh, right after the second car that he'd stolen before he got on the freeway chase, before the police spotted him, I think he went back to the medical clinic to dispose of it and, and her purse and uh, Barbara's purse. And what I think he did is he probably dumped them into a hazmat container because nobody in their right mind would look in there. And uh, then once he did, that's when he jumped back into the car and took off. But they never did find her purse or the, the gun. And I pretty much believe. And why the police never thought about checking that, I've never been able to find any documentation that they ever did a search of West Covina Medical Clinic. And it seems like, you know, they saw him drive, come out of the driveway. So they knew he was there. What did they think he was doing there? Right, for sure. So do prosecutors plan to try them together or separately? Well, initially they were going to try them separately. And then they decided, uh, the powers that be decided that they were going to be tried together. And, um, you know, they were charged with murder and, uh, the, the attorneys, particularly her attorney tried to separate the trials. They wanted to get them out of town. They didn't want the trials to take place in Los Angeles because of all the press. And there was a lot of press because of their connections to, uh, Los Angeles tennis club, Gail Patrick, who was a producer on Perry Mason, 
uh, her and her husband were members there and they knew the Finches. And uh, during the initial hearing for Finch in West Covina, uh, Gail Patrick was there and uh, probably looking for material for Perry Mason for the series, which was in production at the time. And uh, so they had the hearing got a certain amount of press, but by that time, by what the paper's reporting, it just sort of took off. I mean, it exploded. Uh, it, this trial or the, the trials that ensued uh, became a cause celeb. Uh, they not only were nationally famous, they became internationally famous. There were reportings in papers around the world and the press couldn't get enough. And this whole circus of celebrities brought even more attention to the case, particularly the first trial. And they had to move the trial into a larger facility to hold all the people who wanted to be there. We will return after this quick break. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Back again. Carol testifies, right? Yeah, she has a difficult time admitting that they were even a sexual relationship. And you have to look at the at the time period, too, when... Uh, non-marital relations were not looked kindly upon, particularly if it involved somebody who was married. And uh, she broke down uh, on the uh, witness stand about this. And in something that's like out of a movie, the judge asked the prosecutor, well, you know, after she finally admitted the relationship and everything, and everybody thought that was the, you know, that was the cliffhanger. Uh, the, the judge asked the prosecutor if she can be released and he, the prosecutor says, no, we're going to arrest her. And they ended up taking, as she came off the sand, they hauled her out to uh Covina police department where she was booked for murder because they had enough evidence at that time that she was a conspirator with Barbara Finch's murder. So she was arrested and, uh, she, both she and Finch you know, took the bus back to L.A. County Jail while they were held for trial. So just to get the timeline straight, Carol testified at Finch's hearing, and that testimony led to her arrest. And then they are tried together after that. Yes. Okay. Carol wore what appeared to be Barbara's mink coat to the hearing, right? Yeah, it was a fur-trimmed suit, actually, and uh, a dress suit. And what happened is that uh, friends of Barbara's note were familiar with it, and they noticed it. So they knew, uh, you know, their their first impression was that she had either, or, or Finch had stolen it out of the closet to give it to her. And um, he claimed, you know, during later on, I think with the, the, the press, he claimed that uh, the women were two different sizes and that it was just a coincidence that he bought one for Carol, and, you know, that it wasn't the same. It wasn't Barbara's dress, but nobody else believed that. Right. So jury deliberations in the first trial are a mess. Lots of infighting among the jurors. Two of the jurors, you believe, purposely voted for acquittal just to spite another juror in this spat. And amidst this, Dorothy Kilgallen, famous columnist, journalist, and game show panelist, was covering the trial really thoroughly. Well, she wasn't given a lot of credit, I think, initially for her uh, crime reporting. And uh, I believe she was at the Lindbergh trial. I think that may have been her first crime that she covered. Uh, she had a very big presence at the Sam Shepard trial, which was similar in that he was accused of murdering his wife. And she wrote a very moving uh, story of, of seeing the photos of his uh, wife uh, after she was murdered. And so she had quite a history of not only covering Hollywood and being a game show panelist, but being a crime journalist. 
And I don't think a lot of people knew the extent that uh, she was involved in that. And so she would fly out on the red eye after appearing on What's My Line on Sunday nights. And she would be in the courtroom in Los Angeles on Monday morning. And she would stay there till Friday. And then she would take a plane back to New York to be on the, the show. And she did this during the course of the trial and her appearances on the show. And there was a juror communicating with her on the sly. And eventually this juror presented her with his journal, right? Yes. Uh, she somehow, it was known that there was somebody leaking information to her. She was sort of always a step ahead of everybody uh, on the trial as to what was going on with the jury. And as it turned out, once the mistrial was called and the jury was dismissed, she was waiting outside of the courthouse and she spotted the two men. Uh, one was an African-American and the other was Latino. And these were the holdouts on the on uh, the conviction which caused a mistrial and uh she spotted them and she whisked them away in a taxi to her suite at the ambassador hotel and uh the latino juror presented a journal that he had kept now i'm thinking that she might have known about this all along and possibly even suggested it to him but uh she, you know, the report is that the first she heard of it is when he gave it to her in her hotel suite. And so she got on the phone with her uh, syndicate newspaper and she had quite a story to tell based on what he said in the journal. Yeah. So what about the au pair? Uh, as you already said, she had gone into the house after being assaulted, called for help. Uh, then she testified during the trials, right? Yeah. Initially during her first testimony, she was a little shaky, but as she gathered her confidence, she became one of the best witnesses to this. And one of the only ones, uh, who was actually there, uh, when this happened. Now she wasn't actually in the garage or on the driveway when Finch gave chase to his wife, she had gone back into the house to call the police, but she heard the, the gunshots and she had a history living with them. She saw what was going on. So she was able to give a lot of uh, background in the, uh, during the trials. And you have to remember, she was only 19 years old. She was Swedish. She wasn't an American. And here she is thrown into this firestorm uh, of a murder trial, not just a local, but a national murder trial. And she handled herself very well. Right. So in the second trial, there was bad blood, right, between Finch's defense attorneys and the judge. There was something, yeah, when the judge was assigned for the second trial, uh, the defense did not, Grant Cooper did not want this judge. For whatever reason, it never came out. There was something, there had was some sort of bad blood between Grant Cooper and this judge, or maybe it was just the judge's reputation, but he did not want this judge. And he made a point of trying to keep this judge out of the trial, off the trial. And this judge knew that. So I think when this judge came on, he was, he was going to seek retribution against the defense. And uh, basically once the summation happened, he turned to the jury and he basically said, you know, they're guilty. 
and uh, you know Grant Cooper is objecting, and uh, and the judge is uh, saying Grant Cooper is going to spend some jail time and fines, and this was just going back and forth, and it's just unbelievable what they were saying to each other uh, at the end of this trial. And finally, the third jury, they was an, the jury and the judge were good because the jury, all the juries ended up going to Finch's home in West Covina. And they looked at, uh, you know, they went through the house and the grounds and everything, the garage where the murder took place. They couldn't talk, speak amongst themselves, but they were able to see, get a feel for the location. And, uh, one of the key pieces in this is that this jury actually believed there were two things. They actually believed Jack Cody this time. And the other thing is that people on the jury tried to, based on Finch's story of what he claims happened, he claimed all along that the gun accidentally went off in a struggle with Barbara and she ended up discharging and, Basically, nobody shot her. It was just an accident that she was shot in the back. So he talked about how this occurred. And so the jury, members of the jury actually portrayed Finch and Barbara, and they tried to twist themselves into the physical things that Finch said that they happened, and they found it impossible. So they believed that Finch was lying, that, uh, that he murdered her. So they, that's how they were actually convicted in the third trial. But there was a point during the third trial that looked like it might go into mistrial. And there was a, a real fear that there would end up being a fourth trial, which would have been unprecedented in California. It would have been the first time if it had gone to a fourth trial that that had ever happened in a murder case in California. And, uh, but fortunately, uh, the jury did their duty. Uh, the judge cut out nonsense. He stopped whatever bad behaviors had happened uh, in the previous two trials, and they everybody was down to business during the third trial. And uh, they were really worried, though, once they were convicted, because it took them, I think, a, was it a week, possibly a week before uh, the jury met again to decide their fate, whether they were going to get the death penalty or not. And they sweated it out. And uh, during that night, once the night of their conviction, country western singer Spade Cooley uh, had murdered his wife. And so there could have, should have been some fear that that might have had an effect on f the Finch murder case. And, uh, you know, even though the jury wasn't supposed to, that wasn't supposed to influence the jury, but you never know. Wow. So through all of this, did the doctor and Carol uh, stay true to each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, there were, there, there were love letters that went back and forth, mostly on the Finch's part. He wrote her love letters. He was dedicated to her and, and this and that. But, you know, apparently uh, prison can be a sobering effect on one. And Carol was so young. She was 22 at the time. And, uh, I, I think that uh, her ardor cooled for Finch, and uh, so uh, they at one point they really didn't end up speaking to each other. And uh, but Finch became a model prisoner, and 
Carol sort of was, and uh, she spent, I think, eight, seven or eight years in prison. Uh, she was released, and she uh, assumed a new name, and but she stayed in the same area. She worked at uh, a local hospital in Covina as their, in their medical records department, and she actually rose through the ranks of the year and became manager. And she is still alive. She's in her probably mid-80s now. And she lives in the same area, a few miles from my, where my family home was. And, you know, people recognize her that knew about the case and, and so on. She uh, ended up going to a hair salon that uh, people who knew about her f- uh, favored. And uh, her her life changed, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you get into bad behavior. Uh, you're a different person when you're in your 40s and 50s. And so I would imagine she had some time to do some thinking uh, after all that happened. Uh, did you attempt to, to talk to her at, at all? No, I didn't want to uh, do that. Uh, Barbara and Finch had a son uh, who was a couple years younger than I am and still alive. And I thought about one time contacting him, but I thought that somehow it's not going to be good to do that at this point. And uh, so I didn't try to contact anybody who was still alive, uh, you know, which would basically be the children of, uh, of the people involved. But I did do some searching uh, after to find out where Barbara Finch was buried and because uh, that became a mystery in itself. And it turns out there was a Barbara Finch buried at a forest lawn in Covina Hills, but the birth and death dates weren't quite right. And I assume that she was buried at Oakdale uh, in Glendora, which is where most of the Finch family is and where my parents are buried. And so it did some searching and I actually found she is buried in an unmarked grave site, uh, not too far away from where her husband is buried. And I think that they didn't mark the grave because they didn't want any, uh, any notoriety. They didn't want people, you know, defacing it or being there or whatever. So there is no marker on her grave site, which is interesting. But there is for Finch uh, and his parents. And uh, what's interesting is that all the Finch family is buried just yards away from where my parents are. Wow. How do you think he got away with serving such a small amount of time for what was very obviously premeditated first degree murder? Do you think his charm had something to do with it? Um, I don't know about that. He did charm. I mean, he had female jurors uh, during the first trial crying as he described his marriage and uh, he claimed that Barbara was frigid and uh, and about how the gun accidentally went off. I mean, he put on quite a show and uh, and it may, you know, his good behavior, I think, may have uh, hastened, uh, you know, he did spend a longer time in prison than Carol did. And uh, once he got out, he initially went to, uh, I believe, Missouri and worked as an x-ray technician. That was about the best he could do. Uh, He eventually came back to California and had his uh, medical license reinstated. And he ended up practicing in uh, Palm Desert 
for uh, I think the remaining 10 year, 11 years of his life. And uh, that must have been interesting, particularly for patients who knew about his previous history. And uh, but my family, we never saw him again or heard from him. Uh, we did continue going to see Dr. Gordon, his his brother-in-law, but we never asked them or said anything. I might, my mother was, you know, she wouldn't be one to to meddle in somebody's business like that. Uh, but uh, eventually, uh, Dr. Gordon and his wife passed away a few years ago, but they lived to a ripe old ages. So, have you been to the house where Barbara was murdered? And if so, what does it look like now? Well, I driven up the driveway, and uh, I didn't drive up to the house. I've seen photos of it that were on Google uh, Maps. And just about a year, two years ago, the house was actually demolished, and uh, a new home was being built on the property. But there are photos of it. Uh, uh, you know, there were t- uh, the jury visited the uh, the three juries visited the home each time, and so photos were shot. There's actually some significant photos of the jury and uh, Carol Tregoff and Bernard Finch. Uh, in the backyard, in the pool area where the jurors are looking around. So I haven't actually been on the property, but I have seen photos of it. And I have driven up to that area. Uh, My parents almost bought a house not too far, uh, or actually bought some property not too far away from where the the Finch house was. They were going to build a home at one time, and uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. So the the title of your, your book, Satin, pumps. What does that refer to? To the shoes that uh, Barbara was wearing the night she was murdered. She had white satin pumps on. And uh, when she was running down the driveway, she broke a heel. And as after she was shot and stumbled down the stairs, the other shoe ended up being, uh, they ended up finding that shoe that wasn't broken a few feet away from her body. So you have a website, right, where people can learn more about you, your book? Uh, I do, uh, stevecosseroff.com, but I have a a Twitter page for the book. And even if you're not a member of Twitter, if you go to at Satin Pumps, uh, you can find a video uh, footage of uh, recaps the story, my family and our relationship to Dr. Finch and the crime. And it also has a link to uh, other things involved with the book and to the publisher if they'd like to purchase a copy of the book. Well, well, thanks so much for your time today. This has been so interesting. It's quite a story. My pleasure. Again, I've been speaking to Steve Kassareff. He is the author of Satin Pumps, The Moonlit Murder that mesmerized the nation. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.